Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 26. Psalm 26, hear now the word of the Lord. Of David, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Now, how can David say this? David, of all people, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. Really, David, you were walking in integrity with Bathsheba. You were trusting in the Lord without wavering when you sent Uriah to his death. Some have said, oh, David must have written it before that. What? Oh, as though that was the only sin he ever committed in his life. No. Which David are we talking about here? Well, the way of discipleship, the way of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the way of integrity. Now, how, how do you get there? I mean, there's a tendency today to say, ah, don't worry about it, everybody makes mistakes, we're all sinners. Have you ever noticed the Bible never talks like that? The Bible never says, oh, that sin was okay. God never says, oh, that was just a little one, no big deal. As soon as you say it that way, you realize how absurd it sounds. Sin is never okay. We read Hebrews 12 a couple weeks ago when it says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God never says, don't worry about your sin. He says, repent of your sin. Now, ironically, for a world in which everybody says, it's okay, everybody sins, everybody makes mistakes, it's no big deal. At the same time, we have this strange equal tendency to pretend that everything's fine. You'd think, if, if, if it was okay to be a sinner and make all sorts of mistakes, you'd, you'd think people would be more likely to admit it. And oh, but no, actually we have the same problem on the other side, that, oh, we have problems, sure, but not sin. But it's only when we admit that we have a sin problem that we can repent of our sin and thus become innocent. There's a reason why Psalm 26 follows Psalm 25. You have to go through Psalm 25 in order to get to Psalm 26. At the end of Psalm 25, after repenting of his sin, 
pardon my sin, for it is great, David said in verse 11 of Psalm 25. At the end of Psalm 25, David says, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, verse 21, for I wait for you. Our culture says, oh, you just feel guilty, get over it. God says, no, your problem is you are guilty. You need to repent of it. Because it's only when we repent of our sin and turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience that we can begin to walk in integrity. So, in other words, you really can't sing Psalm 26. You can't ask God to vindicate you unless you first sing Psalm 25. And that's why last week we focused on, yeah, we've sinned, I've sinned. This is not... We're not saying, oh, everything's fine here. No. It's, we can only say, vindicate me, O God, when you can say first, pardon my sin, for it is great. So let's sing Psalm 26, and uh, remembering what we sang last week in Psalm 25. Psalm 26 in your, in your red books. Let's stand together.
Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he This is the word of the Lord. There are times in your life when you really want to defend yourself. You want to say, there's more to the story. You need to hear my side. Psalm 26 is a reminder that trying to vindicate yourself is not your job. David is not worried about trying to vindicate himself. He is content to leave that to God. And and by the way, uh, when you read the book of Samuel, you see David do the same thing. So he not only says that he wants to do this, he also then practices it in his life. When Absalom chased David out of Jerusalem, Shimei, the Benjaminite, comes along and starts throwing rocks and, and curses David. And David says, leave him alone. Perhaps God has sent him to curse me. David doesn't say, ah, he shouldn't be here, so get get rid of him. Because after all, whose verdict does David care about? David's not concerned for what people think of him. David's concern is, what does God think of me? Whose vindication matters? If the Lord vindicates you, who cares what man does? And on the other hand, if you're in the wrong before God... No earthly vindication will do the slightest real good. Book one of the Psalter is is all about how to live in the kingdom of God. Book one of the Psalter presumes that the king is on the throne, the the kingdom has come, 
but things are still not the way they should be. And that fits very much our context. Jesus is king. In him the kingdom has come. And yet things are not the way they should be. We are not the way we should be. We saw in, in Psalms 20 to 24 that they, these were five songs about the Messiah, the King, the Son of David. And now over the next few weeks we'll be looking at Psalms 26 to 30, five songs about the sanctuary. Psalm 30 even has the title, A Song at the Dedication of the Temple. And we saw it last time in Psalm 25, the, the centerpiece of this section of the Psalter, as the Psalms are exploring the relationship between the King and the Temple, the Messiah and the sanctuary. It's really the central question is, how can the Lord's Messiah bring his people into his holy sanctuary? And as we saw last time, it's through God's covenant. When the Lord's anointed walks in the ways of God, when he keeps covenant, then God redeems Israel and all nations out of all his troubles. So we, we saw in Psalm 20 that the prayer of the people of God as they prayed for their king. May the Lord answer you, O king, in the day of trouble. May he send you help from the sanctuary. That when God hears from his heavenly dwelling place, then God will, re, will redeem his Messiah. And Psalm 21 was the song of thanksgiving. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. The king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. And then in Psalm 22, we saw the problem. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is God so far away from saving his anointed king? And yet Psalm 22 ended on a note of confidence. When God delivers me, I will praise him in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the assembly. And so we're, we're seeing an awful lot already in these psalms about the king and the sanctuary and the congregation, the assembly. Psalm 23 focused on the experience of the king passing through the valley of the shadow of death, confident that God will bring him safely through to the table. You spread a table before me in the presence of my enemies that I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 24 spoke of ascending the hill of the Lord. Who can do that? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in God's holy place? Who can enter the heavenly holy of holies? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Which plainly points to the son of David, the Messiah, the anointed one of Psalm 2. And yet Psalm 24 also says the king of glory is coming. Who is the king of glory? The, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. We need a Messiah. We need a son of David who is also the king of glory, who is also the Lord of hosts. Because as we saw last time in Psalm 25, we heard the prayer of, of a king who has fallen short of Psalm 24. David and, David and his sons have fallen short of clean hands and a pure heart. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. My failures, David says, combined with my enemies' assaults, have troubled Israel. And so it is only if God has mercy upon us that we can stand before him. And yet he calls us to stand before him. We are called to sing Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart? Well, Psalm 26 says... I wash my hands in innocence. How 
can David wash his hands in innocence? How can I wash my hands in innocence? I've sinned. That's why Psalm 25 says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. It's not that God looks at my deeds and says, Oh, you're innocent. No, not in the least. Rather, He remembers his steadfast love. He remembers his mercy and remembers not my sin, but instead remembers me in Jesus Christ, his son. Because God did remember his mercy and his steadfast love and he sent Jesus, the king of glory, to become the son of David who could enter into the heavenly sanctuary with clean hands and a pure heart. And so we need to see Psalm 26 as the song of the innocent one, the song of our Lord Jesus. He is the David. He is the the anointed one, the Messiah, who has walked in his integrity and has passed every test and entered into the Holy of Holies. But you can't stop there and say, oh, okay, Jesus sings Psalm 26, but we can't. Because David taught Israel to sing this song in and with him. Jesus teaches us to sing this song in and with him. If we never sing Psalm 26 for ourselves, then we will never enter the Holy of Holies. Because what are, what are these psalms doing? They're teaching us, or, or, or better, they're showing us how discipleship prepares us for worship. Discipleship prepares us for worship because as we walk a certain path, as we develop the habits and patterns of a certain direction, we are orienting ourselves toward a certain goal. We are learning to love. And in Psalm 26, we are learning how to love, how to follow the path of our Lord Jesus, that we too might love the place where his glory dwells. David opens with the words, Vindicate me, O Lord. For I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. The opening verb simply means to judge. Judge judge me. But part of it is if you translate that that way in English, you might, in English, when you say judge, that's almost always meaning negative verdict. But in Hebrew, when you say judge, it can be either negative or positive depending on context. And here the meaning is very clear. Judge me, O Lord. Render a verdict in my favor. Declare me innocent. Now, the only reason why David can say this is because he just said in Psalm 25, verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And 25:18, Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. So which one is it? Is David guilty or is David innocent? It's only because David has confessed his guilt that he can now stand innocent before God. If you pretend that you are innocent, then your guilt remains. If you confess your guilt and trust in the Lord without wavering, then he declares you innocent, thereby enabling you to walk with integrity. Indeed, that theme of integrity was where we ended last time in Psalm 25, in verse 21. 
May integrity, same word we see here in chapter 26, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. So, and I want you to see the, this threefold pattern in David's plea here, because first, David asserts that he has walked in integrity, and then second, he calls for God to test the case, test my heart and my mind, and third, David appeals to God's steadfast love. I walk in your faithfulness. It's not just, David's not just here bragging about himself. He's saying, I have walked in your faithfulness. But the first point, he does say, I have walked in my integrity. Integrity has to do with being whole. To walk in integrity means to be the same person in, in, in public that you are in private. To be the same person at work that you are at home. Now, that's just the horizontal aspect of integrity. And if all you have is the horizontal aspect, it can get really ugly. Because I'll bet all of you have known somebody who, oh, he's the same person at work as he is at home, and boy, is that nasty. So being the same person, is not that's not the whole of integrity. It's also being the same person before God that you are before man. If you try to look good before God, but treat others miserably, or if you try to sort of blow God off and say, oh, God's not watching, he's not paying attention. Oh, really? We've all done that. That's not walking in integrity. That's why Psalm 25 opened, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. When we live in ways that are contrary to the way God teaches, that is disintegrating to a certain extent, you could say, what is, what is hell? Hell is to be forever disintegrating. To be forever pulled apart in all sorts of different directions as our soul flies off in different directions. And that's, I mean, if you think about your life in times when you have been living two-faced, three-faced, four-faced ways. Just imagine that going on for eternity. Yeah, I see some looks on your faces. You know what I'm talking about. That's a horrible place to be. How can we become whole again? Well, David says, I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Now, we, we all know that David, was, David sinned, like the rest of us. The, the pattern of my life, though, David says, has been shaped by your word. He's not claiming sinless perfection. He's claiming my confidence is in my God, not in myself. My wholeness, my integrity is found in him. And so David says, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. David has confidence that if, if God tests his heart and mind, God will vindicate him. How can David be this confident? Well, because David believes in principle what Paul will say clearly a thousand years later. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our problem is that we don't believe either half of that. We don't believe that God made Jesus to be sin. Really? God made Jesus to be sin? If your sin was really placed on Jesus, or to use the shocking language of Paul, if God made Jesus to be sin, that means that your sin was fully paid for at the cross. 
And if God has truly forgiven you, then that means that when God declares his verdict regarding you, you are innocent. Do you really believe that? Because if you do, then the second part of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is also true, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And yes, this is first talking about our justification. We are declared righteous before God. But when you keep reading 2 Corinthians, you see Paul very quickly moving on to saying, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. If, if all your sin is washed away, if God has forgiven everything that is lacking in you, then what is left for him to judge? What is his verdict regarding you? Vindicate me, O God. Now, why can the psalmist say, test my heart and my mind? Well, verse 3, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. The foundation of my integrity, the appeal of my conscience before God, is not found in me. It's not because I've always done the right thing. It's not always because, oh yes, I'm, 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 I'm no, no. It is your steadfast love, your covenant loyalty, your faithfulness to your promises. If I'm asking God to judge me simply and solely based on my performance, I'm doomed. But the psalmist does not make his appeal based on his own performance. Your steadfast love is before my eyes. I walk in your faithfulness. When we become the righteousness of God, we are not just forgiven, but we are declared righteous. And we become those who now in him do what is right. Again, Hebrews 12, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's what we quoted in our catechism for this week for the, with the kids, that sanctification is, is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And so we no longer walk in the counsel of the wicked, but we walk in your faithfulness. And that's where, in verses 4 through 10, the psalmist gives the argument for why God should vindicate him. He says, first, I hate the assembly of evildoers. Second, I love the place where your glory dwells. And that's at the heart of what the psalmist says what's why where where am i there are these two assemblies in psalm 26 uh, and the word assembly is the word translated church in the septuagint there's the assembly of the evildoers in verse 5 and there's the great assembly in verse 12 and he hates the assembly of evildoers why does he hate what, what is, is it okay for a christian to hate watch the language of hate and love in this passage because what you love where your heart is there will your treasure be also. If you love God above all else, then you will love all that reminds you of the one that you love. When you see another human being, you love that person because that person is made in the image of God. And so when you see that person, when you see any person, you see one who reminds you of the God you love. But of course, that's why you also must hate the assembly of evildoers. Because in their attempts to lie, to cheat, and to kill, they are destroying the image of the one you love. 
And so the psalmist says in verses 4 and 5, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Think back to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. And now David says, I don't sit there. I will not sit with the wicked. The assembly of evildoers is, is not just a bunch of random people. Sitting with men of falsehood would mean joining with other powerful people in order to perpetrate wickedness on the helpless. That's the picture here. Because who sits together? Uh, the image in David's day would be the, the elders sitting in the city gate. So let me give you a scenario that you may face someday, or maybe you've already faced it. Your colleagues at work are, are trying to push something through, and this is going to seriously hurt people. What do you do? Depending on who you are and what influence you have, there may not be a whole lot you can do to stop them. But there is one thing you can do. I will not sit with the wicked. You can always get up and leave. It may cost you. You may lose your job. But if, if you stay in your seat and you act as though nothing's wrong, then you're not acting with integrity. To be a person of integrity means to walk before men just as you walk before God. It, strength, it takes strength to do what is right. It takes courage to speak up for the helpless. Because when you're in that meeting and you know this, what they're proposing is going to do serious harm, what do you do? Where do you find that courage? Well, the, the only, there's only one way to truly hate the assembly of evildoers, and that is if you truly love the habitation of God's house. Notice that the, the language of verses 6 through 8 is not the language of the conspirators of verses 4 and 5. Now this is the language of the temple, the language of the worship of God. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. I'm not seeking my vindication anyplace else but your altar. Proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Everyone has something that they love above all else. And everyone hates that which interferes with the thing that they love most. Politicians love power, so they hate those that would keep them from obtaining power. But what is it that you love above all else? I, I know. You, you all know the right answer. What's the real answer? If you would find out what it is that you really love, What is it that you really hate? What is it that gets under your skin? What is it that sets you off? Oh, I hate it when somebody cuts me off on the road. Okay, that, follow that path. That'll get you to what is it that you most love because it's the thing that you tend to react to when that goes badly. If you look at the things that really bother you, you will begin to see more clearly what you really love. And that's where... We need to see this so that we can be cleansed of our deplorable loves. The psalmist says, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. My heart is oriented toward your temple. And this is expressed in the psalmist's actions. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. 
I've been using John Ortberg's quote a lot lately, but I'll use it again. You must arrange your days so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. When you are finding your, your, your wholeness, your integrity in Him, when you're finding your contentment, your joy, your confidence in your everyday life with God day by day, it's not just, are you having a quiet time? No, it's, what about the rest of the day? Is the rest of your day practicing the presence of God, walking before Him? Think about the, the practices the psalmist mentions, because how do we develop this love? It's through the practices of God's house. If you engage in the practices of holiness, then you will become more holy. I wash my hands in innocence. The priests would, be, would wash before beginning their sacrificial duties. What's the point of washing? Cleansing. They weren't thinking primarily of germs in those days as they were of uncleanness. Over the course of a day, you might have touched something unclean, so you would wash your hands to purify them so that you might lift up clean hands and a pure heart. Of course, washing your hands doesn't guarantee a pure heart. Think of Pontius Pilate washing his hands. You can go through the outward motions without developing a pure heart. Because the only way to have a pure heart is to engage in the practices of God's house in faith in Christ Jesus. Pontius Pilate washed his hands of the blood of Jesus. If only Pilate had washed his hands in the blood of Jesus. But the the symbolic actions of the temple are joined together with the proclamation of the word. It's why the psalmist adds, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. His outward actions are joined with the word because we must bear witness to the wondrous deeds of God before all the peoples. Notice how the psalmist says, this has become the pattern of his life. Why do we sing the psalms? Why, Why do we use these prayers? Why do we eat a a morsel of bread and drink a mouthful of wine? Why do we recite this old shorter catechism? Well, it's because we recognize the need for our hearts and minds to be retrained. Our hearts and minds have been drawn away to other gods, other things besides the Lord our God. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Many would say, oh, you you can love God with some of your heart, but don't be too radical about it. You, You should have a balanced life. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Not just some. All. Your love for God must be so complete that everything else is guided by that one love. And so, yes, you will love your neighbor because you love God. You will love all that God made because you love the one who made it. But you will never love anything else for its own sake. Why do I say that? Because if you love something else for its own sake, that's an idol. I love my wife. But if ever I love her for her own sake, apart from God then my love has become twisted and perverse. My love for her should always be so directed that she becomes more and more of what God made her to be. She was not made for me. She was made for him. 
verses 9 and 10 then show us what happens when we prize the creature over the creator. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. David uses a couple generic terms for wickedness, sinners, evil devices, and a couple of very particular ones, bloodthirsty men, those who are willing to kill to get what they want, and whose hands, whose right hands are full of bribes. They are willing to corrupt and pervert justice by using money, using power, using what their resources in order to get what they want. These are those whose loves have become disordered. Their loves have become twisted so that they are willing to shed innocent blood to achieve their goals. They are willing to corrupt justice with their bribes. And David says, I don't want to be with them. I wash my hands in innocence, but their hands are full of bribes. I devote myself to the altar of the Lord where the blood of bulls and rams is shed. But they are bloodthirsty men who shed the blood of their fellow man. And David says, don't sweep me away with them. Don't judge me with them because I'm not with them. As for me, verse 11, I shall walk in my integrity. He opened by saying, I have walked in my integrity. Now he promises to continue to walk in integrity, living before man the same way that he lives before God. But he never forgets how he gets there. Redeem me and be gracious to me. The opening imperative was prove me, try me, test my heart and mind. But in closing, the psalmist comes back to to his need for God's redeeming grace. He never claims, I can do it myself. You, O Lord, you must redeem me and be gracious to me. And because God has redeemed me and been gracious to me, my foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. Here we see the the whole assembly, the, the church gathered. Psalm 1 had ended by saying, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And now David says in the great assembly, in the congregation, I will stand and I will bless the Lord. And this is what the great assembly will be on that final day. What Hebrews calls the the assembly or the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And because Jesus is there, the mediator of a new covenant, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, have mercy on us. Have mercy for Jesus' sake, because we are weak and helpless. And you alone are our strength, our rock, and our fortress. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the one who truly walked in his integrity, who truly lived before you faithfully, who never once set foot in the counsel of the wicked, but who washed his hands in innocence and through his own death and resurrection triumphed over the the powers of sin, death, and the devil, that he might win the great victory 
and open the way into the heavenly holy of holies that he might be vindicated at your altar as the king of kings and lord of lords as the one who has triumphed thank you and help us to have this mind in ourselves that is ours in Christ Jesus that we might walk with humility and holiness before you in Jesus name amen <laughs>